Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the only place to hear cutting-edge climate tech founders pitch their businesses in real time and on a podcast. I'm Nick Van Osdal. Let's jump in. Welcome to another episode of the Keep Cool Show, Season 2. One question I get asked a lot is how can I, as an individual, make more of a positive impact and help reverse climate change? Almost always, the answer involves getting your hands dirty. Today's guest, Chad Mazura, is the CEO and founder of Rosie Soil. At Rosie, he and a team of expert soil scientists have pioneered a new soil formulation that has a negative carbon footprint. That means if you use it in your garden, not only will your plants thrive, but you'll be helping all plants and ecosystems the world over thrive. Of course, to get to this point involved a ton of work and digging into soil science on Rosie's part. That's part of what Chad and I go deep on in this episode. It's critical to understand what goes into most fertilizers and soils that you might find on store shelves today to understand why Rosie is so important. A big part of the answer is biochar. From there, I also picked Chad's brain on his choice to build a direct-to-consumer business. Is this the best way to scale biochar to a gigaton-level carbon sequestration solution? That's something that we'll discuss. Finally, Chad and I also talk about Rosie's efforts to make their entire supply chain as sustainable and low-carbon as possible. This is a challenge that's pertinent to all climate tech verticals, and indeed, almost all industries. Ready to talk dirt with us? Let's have a listen. Chad, great to have you on the Keep Cool Show. I know you and I have chatted a lot in the past, but a lot has also happened with your business since then. So we'd love for you to give 60-second elevator pitch on what's up with Rosie. Yeah, amazing. And thanks for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it. So yeah, Rosie Soil is an earth-positive soil company. We're on a mission to nurture plants and the planet by crafting soil from captured CO2. So our flagship product is an indoor potting mix. It's currently designed specifically for houseplants, and it's crafted from all-natural, sustainable ingredients that optimize drainage, deliver key plant nutrients, and support a diverse community of beneficial fungi and microbes. And then most importantly, and you know why we're talking today, the product is a net sequester of carbon, meaning that for every bag we produce, over two kilograms of CO2 are removed from the carbon cycle. And we manage this by carefully considering our shipping, our packaging, and the use of low carbon and carbon negative ingredients like biochar. Fantastic. I'd love to start by painting a picture, if you will, for our listeners of like all the different things that go into producing it on your end. So what do you start with? What are some of the steps in that supply chain look like? How do you go from soil, if you will, back to an even more sustainable, powerful soil? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the process is is relatively simple. So we essentially start with a biomass feedstock. So that started as plant material. Plants are really good at sucking carbon out of the air and turning it into their bodies. And when those plants die and are allowed to decompose or burn, they re-release much of that CO2. So we basically hijack that process. We take plant waste, bio-waste that's destined for a landfill, and convert it into biochar. And that process basically goes through something called pyrolysis, which you heat up that biomass to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time, and that solidifies basically the carbon in that material and delays the decomposition of that material in a way that essentially sequesters carbon. So basically, we take that biomass, convert it to biochar, and then we take the biochar and blend it with additional sustainable inputs to create a a high-quality potting soil. 
which can then be used in both consumer and sort of commercial applications to grow more plants, basically. So you're getting additional kind of carbon back into soil that wouldn't otherwise be there and reduces emissions from if someone were to just burn waste biomass or leave it out to sit and kind of even leak back into the atmosphere. Yep, exactly, exactly. And to give listeners a sense of kind of the scale of how much of this biomass is available, because I think that's an important point. I talked to other quote unquote carbon removal companies that have a lot of tailwinds right now, and they're constantly thinking about like, okay, how do we make all the inputs that we need to drive this carbon removal process sustainable? Talk to me about where you get your biomass and just how much of this stuff is out there that people aren't using or aren't kind of using for productive purposes. Yeah, it's almost an incomprehensible amount of of biomass that we produce (laughs) every year. Think about, say, a corn stalk, right, or a rice plant. Like, the useful sort of mass on that plant of that crop is such a small percentage of the total mass of that crop. And what ends up happening is we leave the material in the field to decompose or replace some of the nutrients that it took out, or we burn it. And that's just within agriculture. There's so many other places where we're producing tons of biomass, and that biomass is allowed to, that carbon in that biomass is allowed to re-enter the atmosphere. So the challenge really isn't finding biomass. The challenge is building the logistics and infrastructure to use that biomass in a way that is basically efficient, low carbon, and incremental, additional, that we're not producing biomass to then specifically be used for biochar production. Yeah, existing biomass needs to be moved and transformed as opposed to you're not starting a full new growing operation to create biomass to then pyrolyze. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, it reminds me of other players in the carbon removal industry. Again, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a company called Planetary Technologies a couple of weeks back where they said, effectively, we're like a mass transfer company. We're more of like a shipping company than we are a carbon removal company. It's a question of like how you move uh, different mass and transform that mass and move it to different places, whether it's carbon or biomass, carbon more specifically, or something like biomass. Like, how do you change where that ends up? That's really the that's really what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. And the infrastructure exists to move biomass around. Obviously, we're getting corn off of cornfields, etc. What's I think what the bigger strategic challenge is is can you co-locate your production, the biochar production, in places where you already have collections of that biomass and in places where the sort of end customer is also nearby. We don't want to be moving big tonnages of material further than we have to because there's obviously a carbon cost associated with that transportation. I'm curious also to back up a step and get the kind of genesis story or the aha moment story of how you got involved with biochar and soil, because there's a lot of different places that someone interested in climate or climate tech could apply themselves. And I'm I'm curious how this is the one that that you decided to go really deep on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of joke that there were sort of two paths towards it. The first was kind of my brain <laughs> and sort of research and the <laughs> sort of other path was my heart. And so, you know, starting on the kind of brain or logical side, I have wanted to figure out how to apply my time to climate for probably four or five years now and have gone super deep on a bunch of weird kind of failed <laughs> sort of startup ideas and 
ultimately came to carbon capture and started going deep on the various sequestration tools and technologies we have available. And as soon as I learned about biochar, I think the light bulb started going off and I totally fell down the biochar rabbit hole as people do and ultimately <laughs> spent probably three or four months trying to convince myself that it was a bad idea and went you know deep on permanence and deep on some of the issues related with biochar and just felt like there's a really interesting opportunity here to scale sequestration as an externality, as a positive externality of biochar. And I think that becomes really powerful. So that was the brain side of the thing. <laughs> I think the, the heart of it was I, I grew up gardening. Like I have super fond memories of being in the garden with my grandma as a, as a kid. I literally asked for dirt for Christmas <laughs> one year. I was just super into it and a super nerd. And so combining, I think, those two pieces, it just started to feel really right. And I started to get really excited about the idea of telling people that I literally sell soil for a living. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I think I made this joke previously when I heard that story from you once in the past, but it's like coal for Christmas mm -hmm. is this bad, bad thing for kids, yeah. but maybe in the future kids will, we can encourage more kids to actually ask for biochar for Christmas. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I think half of my mission is, just, can I you know, get people asking for literally charcoal for coal <laughs> to be under their Christmas tree. I'm curious, hearing you lay that story out and thinking about the business now, I'm curious what made you make the decision to go more direct to consumer with your product as opposed to like B2B or wholesaling biochar or something to that effect. Because especially if we tie that question back to this idea of like, how does biochar become a gigaton level carbon removal technology as the IPCC thinks it can. I'm curious to hear you talk more about like why you went D to C and, and where you think the impact lever there is. I would say two main reasons. First, the consumer soil space is a massive market. Gardening is America's favorite hobby. Two thirds of Americans are growing plants every year. And <laughs> COVID just totally kickstarted that, I think, for a lot of people and especially a lot of young people. So there we move a lot of soil through consumers every year. And as I kind of went deeper on that side of the industry and on that side of the category, and I looked at some of the practices of the soil that I had been buying my whole life, for instance, most products today are built on peat as the base. And mining peat bogs is one of the most extractive and high CO2 sort of activities we do as a species. I mean, 5% of global emissions are produced by the peat mining industry. And so Interesting. it was clear that you could make a better product with a not only a much lower carbon footprint, but actually a negative carbon footprint for a large and sort of quickly growing market. And it seemed like the best place to start. Are we going to get to gigaton level sequestration in consumer alone? No, definitely not. This needs to be a sort of global and business government and consumer sort of participation to get there. But I think consumers a sort of really great place to start because, again, so many people are buying soil and looking for more ways to be sustainable. And if you can offer them a, a better, more sustainable product, I think you really have you know an opportunity to start to really scale something. Yeah, I like the point that you closed on, especially I always or very frequently get asked by readers of my newsletter or friends day to day, like, what can I as an individual do to future-proof my lifestyle or help with climate technologies or help reverse climate change? And that's a tricky question to respond to in almost all cases because there's some 
I don't want to call them platitudes, but there's some like general advice that I can give everyone about like your next car should be an electric vehicle. If you own a home, you should buy a heat pump. But you want to also have some things that people can get excited about and like things that they can tact feel and tactilely experience. And that's why I think that like a product like yours that they can use to do something that they enjoy, but also it's almost like a Trojan horse for biochar. Not like a, you need something like that to, to sell it to people, but it is an easier way to turn people on to these interesting technologies that you and I have already gotten really excited about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's exciting about it is a lot of the gardeners I talk to are inherently nature people. They care deeply about this stuff and they, they want to learn and they want to find all the kind of small adjustments they can make in their lifestyle to improve their footprint. And I think thinking about what's sort of what's going under their ground and what's growing their plants is a is a kind of fun sort of piece to this. And to your point, yeah, it sort of is a is a Trojan horse for biochar insofar as that we are doing tons of R&D to figure out how to make biochar useful for people in specific sort of growing circumstances and in a way purchasing this sort of simple houseplant mix is helping us figure out how to f- solve some of those challenges and how we always talk about how do you make something as efficacious or as productive as possible with the lowest footprint possible. And that's a tough, it's a tough challenge, but it's a fun one to work to solve. And it's part of our roadmap is basically uncovering pieces of this as we go. Based on that, I'd like to hear more about your own R&D and kind of the science side, because I guess what I'll start with is there's a lot that's uncertain still on the soil science side of things like people still really are unsure of exactly how carbon sequestration in soil works exactly how to measure that exactly how to verify it if you want to start using kind of carbon markets parlance so who on your team is spearheading that and and what are some of the most surprising things that you've learned so far yeah absolutely and i think you're spot on one of the favorite i've talked to a lot of phd soil scientists and one of my favorite lines one of them told me is when they, they did their bachelor's in soil science, they did their master's in soil science, and they thought they knew about 10% <laughs> of what they could know about soil. And then they did their PhD in soil science, and they came out of that feeling like they knew less than 1% of what they could know about soil. And yeah, I mean, it's this sort of beautiful, complex, insanely diverse ecosystem where, you know, one tablespoon of soil has like billions of microbes. And we have only scratched the surface to start to understand how all of those interact and work to do the beautiful things that soil does. So, yeah, it's super complicated, but it's also really fun and really interesting and makes for insanely sort of interesting conversations and challenges, especially as we start to bring carbon into the conversation. So how have we approached it? Well, so first we went out and found one of the best soil experts we could find. His name's Jules, he's joined our team, and he's really tasked with leading our plant trials and our formulation research to incrementally just improve. We're, we've picked a number of metrics we want to optimize for. One of those is the footprint, and we're going to continue to tweak and play with the formula until we get there. And then Jules, his sort of first big project was to build around him board of PhD scientists. So we've amassed, you know, some incredible folks who have gone and done their PhDs in plant science or soil science or horticulture and are helping us craft these experiments and run sort of our formulation process in a way that we feel like we can come up with a, a really sort of efficacious 
process and product. So yeah, it's just the beginning of it. We're pretty happy with the houseplant mix, but there's a lot more to improve you know, on this first indoor potting mix. And then it's going to be really fun to start to expand the line and figure out what is the right combination and type and particle size and process of biochar. And then how do you blend it with a bunch of other beautiful ingredients to make something that really works for people? Yeah, no, it's, it sounds like a really interesting challenge because you're not just trying to make the most effective soil as possible. And that could be different for all kinds of different stuff that you might grow, which is an interesting challenge. But you're also trying to figure out alongside that it's like how much carbon can we get sequestered in here for how long is that going to stay out of the carbon cycle so a i can definitely appreciate the challenge of that and b i'm interested to hear more about the latter like what has what people call that like life cycle assessment of your product looked like so far is that mostly being done in-house or are you working with folks outside to try and understand how much sequestration you're achieving yeah it's a great question so we wanted to go third party we wanted a outside group to help us figure this out. So we hired an LCA consultant to run the whole thing. And he pulled from some of the leading databases and some of the leading studies about the various inputs. So he used EcoInvent to basically pull what's the kilograms of CO2 per pound of or per kilogram of our compost per kilogram of our mycorrhizal fungi amendment. We spent a lot of time on the biochar piece because that's where we're driving a lot of the carbon negativity. So we pulled from a well-cited Cornell study that did meta-analysis on a number of different pyrolyzers and their process and feedstock to get to a number that we feel pretty confident about in terms of the sort of CO2 per ton of biochar, but also one that was sort of more conservative than some of the other studies because we wanted to just sort of room in the math for errors. And so the last piece was packaging and then obviously shipping and and transport. And again, all of these are sort of pieces that other folks have done the math. And for us, it was sort of combining it all into one coherent piece. So that's where we're getting to our negativity claims. And we feel pretty confident about that number. But we also are sort of wanting to put it out there and wanted to put a sort of draft out into the world because we want people to poke holes and ask questions and push us on our thinking um, around this. And yeah, and we, we're just sort of looking for, for more data. So I think that part of it is also sort of really interesting and it's going to continue to be an evolution as we iterate on the product and the formulation, as we expand the line. And as I think we start to get harder on some of these numbers as an industry around all the pieces that are going into this. Yeah, that's a good kind of reminder at the end. It's as I opened with, it's not just you all trying to get as exact as possible on your own soil science and the numbers. It's everyone's still trying to figure this out across the space. You've alluded to it a couple of times, but I'm interested to hear what the rest or what the next pieces of the product roadmap look like, because I know that you already have some good stuff that folks can go online and order, but I'm curious what's next. Yeah. I mean, we see this, the current mix is sort of the base. That's the one that we want to go optimize. We want to get really good at it. And then we think it definitely extends into a bunch of different ways consumers are buying soil. So cacti and succulent is an obvious next one, container gardening, herb gardening, raised bed mixes etc. But we also sort of want to co-create with our community. So we really like the idea. I mean, we've been sending product to gardeners for months now, and we really like the idea of kind of working with with our community to figure out what do you need? What are you looking for? How do we make a product that best fits fits the way that you're gardening and, and growing? So 
we'll see. I have ideas about where it could go, but I <laughs> would love to be shown a different path based on what our customers are looking for. Yeah, yeah, that's a good it's good flexibility to keep in mind. I mean, for what it's worth, I got my dad some of the basic mix for or the base mix for Christmas, and he says it's working quite well for him. So kudos on that front. You uh, you have two thumbs up from <laughs> two green thumbs out here in, in Northern California. It's fantastic that you already feel reasonably confident about your product being carbon negative as is, but like where else in your supply chain are there opportunities to reduce emissions even further? I know that you've talked about co-locating as many opportunities across the supply chain as possible, but yeah, it would be interested to hear you talk about kind of other areas of the supply chain that you're focusing on, because that's a challenge for almost any company in the world and even any climate tech companies, even if part of your process is really impactful, like other areas that you have to source materials from or transport things around the world those are going to be hard to decarbonize too. Yeah, so I would say there's two main things that I'm thinking about. First is what you mentioned, which is transportation. Getting really intelligent and efficient about our supply chain so that the inputs aren't moving too far and that the final product isn't moving too far. And setting up the infrastructure really to make that work at scale. You know, I would say that's probably the biggest chunk of the LCA that I think over time we can optimize for, but I think the other piece of that answer is how do we get sort of more carbon into the product? Right. And I think there's some really interesting additional sequestration tools and, and technologies that can provide benefits when added to soil and can also sequester carbon. So I'm not even sure that the negative aspect of our mix will come from biochar alone as we scale. And I think that's where it becomes really sort of interesting and fun over the long term. Yeah, that's the thing that's kept me from doing Keep Cool merch in the past too. But there's got to be, I actually know a company, Earth Brands, I think they make reasonably reasonably clean hats, or at least at one point they did. So I'd have to follow up with them again. I try to find the best. It's, it's organic cotton. It's certified in a couple different things. So I try to find the best that I could. But yeah, it's always tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, once in a while, I mean, if it's for the right reasons, uh, it's hard to be perfect. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Well, let's zoom out a little bit. I'd love to also hear, and this might may or may not tie back to kind of the Genesis story question that I asked you at the beginning, but it sounds like you studied climate technologies for a while before even landing on biochar as the one that you wanted to dedicate some significant time to. Like what other industries or technologies kind of under that broader climate umbrella do you take inspiration from or are you even just like really excited about? Oh man, it's a super long list. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of inspiration for the route that I think we're approaching this, I mean, I really look at sort of electric vehicles and the adoption of that technology, and I look at plant-based meat and the adoption of that technology, insofar as that you sort of needed your hero product at low volumes to sort of prove to people that this was worth doing, <laughs> right? And to sort of fuel the R&D and really the sort of production capacity to scale the usefulness of the technology and, and bring the price down. And so you talk about this Trojan horse, like the Tesla Roadster or the Impossible Burger that was, you know, you could only find at the super high-end restaurants. Like, you know, our <laughs> soil is sort of a version of that, which is it's low production, it's expensive input, so it's not as cheap as some of the other stuff out there. But the hope is that helps fuel, again, this R&D and the scaling to get to a point where it makes sense for 
everyone, your high production farmer to even be interested in sort of use biochar in their application. So that's the kind of general long-term thinking here for this. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. And and what does traction look like if you're able to share with customers coming in the door and, and getting their hands on the soil for the first time? Yeah. I mean, sounds like your dad is loving it, but we're hearing that feedback. I mean, people are really happy with the mix. We've so we launched the new brand on Earth Day two weeks ago and you know, launched our TikToks and are seeing good traction. I think we have fifty thousand views and counting on Ooh. our first video and sales are starting to roll in. So we're really excited about the initial traction here and feel good about where the messaging is starting to go. But I think there's still a lot to learn. And yeah, we're really we're in sort of that feedback mode, right? We want to hear from people does this resonate with you and why? And do your plants love the product and why? And how can we make it better for you? And so it's the beginning of a a really kind of fun journey to figure out some of those questions. Yeah. I mean, as you say, if you're going to be like, if you want to be the anchor consumer product in a new category, the unspoken part of all of that is that you have to delight customers every step of the way. So I need you to, I'm going to need some lessons on TikTok. So that's like the next hot climate tech media vertical that um, I am not ready to tap into yet, but I think you'd be good at it. I think there's some cool stuff happening on there. And I think you got a cool story to tell on TikTok. Are there any interesting, maybe it's policy developments or other companies that are really innovating in the space that you see as kind of tailwinds for your business? In terms of other people doing cool stuff with Batra? Yeah, or maybe, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily know. Maybe there's interesting stuff happening on the the regulatory front or the policy front uh, in the US. Any of that's fair game. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff happening in the biochar space. I think on the private side, there's a lot of smart people getting into the supply side, into producing biochar. And that's actually one of the reasons we sort of went to the demand side. We hope that a lot of people are going to be making biochar over the next number of years, and we want to be... We want to support them on the demand side to make sure that their businesses work and can scale. And then on the science side, it's mind-boggling. It seems like a new study comes out almost every day on biochar and how it's used, one on the climate side and why it's useful from a sequestration perspective, but then also on the ag and other applications for it side, where we're just learning so much, to your point about the complexities of soil, we're learning so much about how to use and apply this in ways that are effective and meaningful for growers. And so... I'm really excited for the years to come on that side of it as we start to really uncover some of the science. And then on the public side, you know, there's a lot of obviously interest going into nature-based solutions and sequestration in general. And biochar is often sort of one of those words thrown around. And so it'll be interesting to see how some of these sort of some of these grants unfold um, and how some of the energy towards nature-based sequestration and towards biochar specifically helps fuel some of this innovation. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's been so much on the demand side in the broader carbon removal space. You know, Stripe rolled out their billion dollar fund alongside a bunch of other Fortune 100 companies to make advanced market commitments for carbon removal. There's new VC funds dedicated specifically to carbon removal. So yeah, it's interesting. I don't always think of biochar hasn't always immediately come to my mind in those conversations, but it probably should, especially because of how durable of a sequestration technique it can be. So it'll be interesting to see how it slots into all of that. It will be. And if you look at the amount of money that Microsoft, the percentage of their spend that's going towards biochar is actually quite meaningful. And part of that is just because 
the biochar industry sort of has a bit of a head start. I mean, we're producing lots of this stuff already every year. And so it'll be cool to see how it fits in with that sort of portfolio strategy. But yeah, we're just in the very early days of this thing. And it's interesting. I mean, I think back to sort of two years ago when I first started thinking about and talking about biochar, and pretty much everyone I talked to had never heard of <laughs> never heard of it. And it's very different today when I say the word biochar. I mean, a decent percentage of people that I talk to have heard of it or familiar with it and are interested in the solutions that it brings. So it's exciting to see that that shift even in that short amount of time. And I would have I would fall into that category pretty precisely of two years ago. If you'd asked me, I would have been like, yeah, I don't. I don't know what that is, but (laughs) here we are talking about it today. So yeah, to close, I'd love to finish with a little more on the business side of things. What did your most recent fundraising round look like? And describe that experience for me. I'm very curious. Yeah, so we did purposefully decided to go kind of the venture route. We want the pressure to massively scale this thing. I joke (laughs) that we should a thousand X or die (laughs) or die trying. And those resources should go elsewhere if we can't do it. So we raised a small pre-seed, mostly from kind of strategic angels and a a few smaller funds, really predicated on going and nailing product market fit. So trying to figure out, are people going to be interested in this type of product and basically will they buy it? And the hope is that if we can scale enough to kind of demonstrate that to then kind of go raise a bigger seed round probably sometime next year. Fantastic. So yeah, I mean, it was an interesting pitch because it's kind of a different approach to carbon capture. I mean, it's really more of a CPG company on its surface than a carbon capture company. So it's how to tell that story and how to really frame the impact within sort of what we're doing was a challenge. But I think we found some really, really sharp investors who see our vision and are excited to be on board with us. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I imagine that if you were really pitching on the kind of carbon removal and sequestration side, you'd get some of those inevitable, like really hard math questions of like, how does this become a half gigaton climate tech solution on its own or what have you, like on that climate impact side of things, which look, I think is achievable too, or at least a really significant impact. But yeah, I'm sure that like a blended approach of that perspective and the CPG perspective was powerful. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I love those hard questions. I want those hard questions. (laughs) We are trying to build a gigaton level sequestration business here. The approach that we're doing it, I think, is a little bit different and purposefully so because we think it scales faster. So my joke is that we're a carbon capture company disguised as a trendy soil brand. And we think that the right initial market for us to go after in order to achieve fast a fast ability to scale. I love that. That's a great pull quote. What's the hardest hire that you have to make now that you've raised some money? <laughs> oh. This is my biggest challenge. I am currently looking for a um, person to take us from zero to one in a retail space. So a retail salesperson to really spearhead that because most people are buying soil on shelves today. And it's been challenging. The hiring market is tough right now if you're a business. It's great if you're <laughs> looking for a job. So that's my most difficult hire today. Cool. Well, not necessarily cool, but <laughs> thanks for the transparency. Like that's a super important position, even though e- e-commerce penetration has gotten really good over the past 10 years, it's still only like what, 10, 15, maybe 20% for certain products of the way that people buy in the country. So, yeah. And we're, you know, we're being picky. We're a small company. So this is someone getting in on the ground floor and we want someone totally brilliant. So. Yeah. 
for other listeners that either want to check you all out to buy some soil or might be interested in, you know, learning more about your story or maybe even working for y'all, like what are the the right calls to action that you'd like people to take? Yeah. So come check us out. We want you to be a part of this story and this mission. You know, we're on TikTok at Rosie Soil. We're on Instagram. We have our website, rosysoil.com and have a newsletter. And if you're a gardener and looking for great soil for your houseplants, we'd love for you to try out a bag and send us your feedback and send us your thoughts. And yeah, we're just excited really to kind of co-create this with folks who are interested in the sort of convergence of gardening and sequestration and all the fun things that happen in that world. Nice. What do I have to do to uh, get myself one of those rosy soil hats that you're wearing that the view, <laughs> our listeners can't see? But this is the I've only I've made one for myself and one for Jules. So, uh, but I've had a couple <laughs> people ask. So maybe we'll do like a limited drop or something. Although the foot, you know, the footprint associated with merch is questionable. So, what are some of these other? I'm, I'm super curious. What are some of these other potential carbon sinks look like? Yeah, I think the next sort of obvious one is mineralization. And adding basalt to the mix because you get benefits by adding those minerals and making them available to the plant roots. They provide nutrients. So not only are they, you know, running their mineralization process and pulling CO2 out of the air, but they can also have those co-benefits. And I think there's some some fun stuff like that that we can explore. Gotcha. And where does basalt come from for our listeners' edification? Let's talk a little bit more about mineralization and, and what that process looks like. Yeah, it's so you have to mine it basically. You have to find a source for the basalt and then you have to grind it. So there's energy and carbon footprint associated with obviously both of those activities plus transportation. But the companies that are doing cool stuff around mineralization have basically found a way to speed up the carbonization process of that that mineral in a way that offsets all the sort of carbon activities to sort of get there, right? And so I think heirloom capital is, or sorry, just heirloom is the interesting one in the space doing cool stuff. And yeah, once you sort of get that sort of right particle size and low carbon mineral, you kind of need to find a place to put it basically. <laughs> and so soil is one of the great places to put it because you can get that the co-benefits out of that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not super up to speed on you know how much of the stuff is already mined or whether it's ever left behind like in mine tailings but maybe there's opportunities there where it's like there's excess and you could use that in your soil as opposed to has to be it has to be mined from scratch so yeah i know we've talked a little bit about what your kind of initial lca assessments or how those have gone so far and that that's going to be something that's pretty iterative as you refine your soil science and your product formulation but something that's interesting for me when i think about when I start to think about it is like, what baseline do you compare your product to? Is it like another soil that's on the shelf somewhere? Or is it a scenario in which biomass is treated in a certain way and isn't paralyzed? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we designed the LCA, we actually went and found a third party LCA on a traditional bag of potting soil. So it's mostly peat. There's some synthetic fertilizers in there. There's plastic packaging. There's a lot of transportation. So, you know, when we compare our size product to your traditional bag, a traditional bag is plus between three and four kilograms of CO2, and our bag is negative two kilograms of CO2. So it's, you know, considerably better from a carbon perspective. 
And the main reason for that is the reliance of most of the industry on peat moss. So peat moss is this amazing growing medium. It's super common in the potting soil industry, and it's great for plants. The problem is it's really not so great for the planet. In order to produce peat moss, we have to go basically mine peat bogs, which are massive sequesters of carbon. They Peat bogs hold on to more carbon than all of the Earth's forests combined, and the extraction industry around peat bogs accounts for 5% of total global emissions. So it's 2x worse than the airline industry, and we're basically pumping this stuff out of peat bogs to produce potting mixes. And so by replacing what would normally be peat in the mix with low-carbon inputs like compost and carbon-negative inputs like biochar, we not only get to a sort of better product, but we get to a much more sustainable from a carbon perspective product as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually, you know, this shows you how much I know about soil, but I hadn't put two and two together around like how much of what's on shelves today is peat. And yeah, as you say, it's always super enlightening when folks kind of have that aha moment around peat sequestering more carbon than a bunch of other natural ecosystems. It's pretty wild that it's not something that you necessarily think about, especially growing up out here, like in the Western US, but it's really important. Yeah. And it's challenging. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to walk down the shelves of a garden center and find a bag of soil that doesn't have peat in it. It's kind of like the way people talk about the impact of EVs. It's like, it's not the car itself. Like that's actually kind of climate negative to produce it, but it's like the displacement of gasoline miles. So you guys are displacing those peat kilograms in bags of soil with biochar ones. Something that's negative. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in. And don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.